Uh, turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Acts 4, and we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 23, and we'll be going through 37, um, and we're going to begin our time with the reading of God's Word. Um, so Acts chapter 4, um, verse 23 begins and says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Amen. Please pray with me. Dear God, we confess that it is only through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross that we can stand before you today. And as we have just read, that we, we exalt your name because you are the sovereign Lord. You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It is your rule, your, your authority that we desire to submit to Lord, we, we lift up our brothers and sisters um, all over the world. Um, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Uh, we pray that you will use, somehow use this crisis to, to bring about good, which was meant for evil. Um, we pray for the many families who have lost loved ones this past week in the attacks. And we ask that you would work 
in your church around the globe to provide relief and aid to them. And Lord, we we pray that the church remains bold in its witness, that others in these communities are led to trust and place their hope, their eternity in Christ. Again, we, we pray for our neighbors, both locally and globally, who have yet to trust in the name of Jesus. We pray with the psalmist that all the nations would call upon him. May they turn to you May the whole earth be filled with your glory. Holy Spirit, we pray that you meet us wherever we are this morning. For some this morning, fear, unrest have been driving their thoughts. For some, feeling sick, um, tired, weathered, and just just worn out, we, we pray for your healing. We pray for your strength. Pray that your peace would abound in their lives. And, and some of us here this morning, we're experiencing what the psalmist wrote, feeling helpless, weak, wounded, and in need of a deliverer. We pray that the comfort that only comes from your presence is felt this morning. And we ask that you guide us this morning to be nourished by your word, equipped to boldly proclaim it to the ends of the earth. For your glory, in the power of Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. It's really great. I got to meet some new people um, on my way in this morning. Um, it's good to have you guys. If, if this is your first time joining with us, or maybe this is your first time joining with us in a long time, I just want to kind of catch you up. Uh, we have been journeying through the book of Acts uh, in a series entitled Becoming His Church. And we started this series in January, about eight weeks ago, um, and have witnessed how Luke records uh, the birth and development of the church, of his church. And where we last left off in Acts, Luke records how the church faced their first onset of persecution. The the main point of the text this morning uh, is that the early early church's dependence on God and that their unity together deepen as the early church experiences these threats. And so I want to start off this morning uh, just with a question. How many of you guys like cheap knockoffs? It's, it's kind of a funny question, right? Um, I was asking um, some friends around, and uh, they all had very different answers, but one friend, um, I just want to tell you what he said. Uh, when asking this one friend this question, the best response uh, that I got was from this guy, and he asked me two counter questions uh, to, do you like cheap knockoffs? He asked me first, well, this is a serious question. Do I need it to last? And what am I missing out on? Very interesting. (laughs) Do you like cheap cheap knockoffs? Hold on, hold on, hold on. (laughs) Do I need it to last? And what am I missing out on? You see, this friend knew that not all cheap knockoffs are alike. The context of the knockoff matters. Um, I'll give you an example. A friend of mine in high school, uh, he went to China for a high school trip. 
Um, and uh, he thought it'd be very smart of him to buy um, like a couple dozen Gucci wallets for $2 a piece. Um, and this way he could stock up presents to give to friends around Christmas and their birthdays. And so I naturally got one. Um, and I used it, um, $2 cheap knockoff Gucci wallet in high school. Um, no one cared because everyone had the same imitation wallet. <laughs> I used it till it fell apart <laughs> three months later. Uh, and, and when it fell apart, all good. Um, I went to TNC and I got a new wallet for five bucks. You know, um, I simply just replaced it. It didn't matter. The authenticity of it, again, didn't really matter. I didn't need the real thing. Um, I wasn't missing out on much, and it was easily replaceable. On the other hand, um, unlike a Gucci wallet in high school, um, my response would be very different. Um, if I was shopping for maybe something really important, um, like a new brake system for my minivan, why in the world would I want to buy a cheap knockoff of a brake system for my vehicle to risk the safety of my kids and my wife just to save a few dollars? I would not do that. I want something that will last. I want something that is authentic. I want, I want something that's reliable, something that, that we as a family can trust. Um, so when it comes to a life and death situation, these cheap knockoffs, they simply will not do. They won't make the cut. In the same way, when it comes to matters of eternal life and death, cheap knockoffs simply will not do. We're talking about this actually this morning with the youth and the college. Um, you know, many pulpits today uh, are corrupted with <laughs> a build a better you theology, uh, uh, the best version of yourself Christianity, and uh, be true to yourself centered unity. And they, they painfully miss this crucial detail that contextualizes the unity of this early church. You know, sure, they're going to marvel at these different snapshots in Acts. They're going to marvel at the growth of thousands of believers. And what are they going to do with that marvel? They're going to build strategies and how to replicate this model of growth. They're going to bottle it up and sell it. Some will even stand in awe of the healing miracles that were performed by the apostles, and they will author and sell books on how to receive your own miracle from God today. But what will they do with the context of this unity that we just read about in Acts 4? What will they do with the message of persecution? What, how will they address the oppression these first-generation Christians faced? What will they say about the two pastors shot by Islamic extremists after their worship service just two weeks ago in Peshawar, Pakistan? And with these many different martyrdom reports, there's another one from the Voice of the Martyrs report saying that this past week, dozens of villagers in Limu County in Kenya were shot, stabbed, and burned beyond recognition. And one woman was tied up and forced to watch their attackers behead her husband simply because they believed in Jesus Christ and they would not recant their faith. What will those churches say in response to the threats that 
faithful Christians face all around the world today. What, they didn't have enough faith? So it's important that we we study this text, and let's talk about where we live. We live in a time where many people peddle an encouraging message about unity and attempt to call that the gospel. This isn't unity. This isn't the gospel that we read about in Scripture. What that is is a cheap knockoff. This type of unity is a sham. And it might fool some. It certainly has fooled many. And it might even survive a short period. But it will not last. Consumer-driven churches and pop Christianity try to arrive at this image of unity and generous culture that you'll see at the end of this passage in verses 23 through 37 without understanding the threats and opposition God permitted in order to develop this unity in the church in verses 1 through 22 from the previous week. See, the thing is, you can't fabricate true unity and expect it to last. True unity is developed around the faithful proclamation of Jesus, the faithful proclamation of the word, the gospel message. This was the anthem of the early church. Their unity was founded by God through the faithful proclamation of Jesus and him crucified. That even after multiple threats to never teach again about Jesus, they couldn't help. Scripture says, Peter says to the people at, on, on the trial, so he says, I couldn't help. We couldn't help but talk about what we have seen and heard. We can't help but proclaim the gospel. So again, as the early church experiences threats, their dependence on God and their unity together deepen. The title of the sermon this morning is Threatened, Shaken, and Stirred. And again, we will be in Acts 4, 23 through 37. Verse 23 begins with, they were arrested. And this is a really good point for us to kind of review, like, to understand what's going on. What brought us here to verse 23? Um, This points us back to the text from previous week, um, and so we're going to have to jump back at least to chapter 4, verse 1. Peter and John were arrested by the Sanhedrin, and they were placed into custody overnight. Why? Simply because they were teaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And upon their trial, Peter and John were asked, by what power and under what authority did you heal this lame man? And teach. So Peter once again stands up and he proclaims the gospel to these religious officials. And he proclaimed it was under the authority of Jesus Christ, the man that they sentenced to death on the cross several weeks ago. Peter explained that they have rejected Jesus, the cornerstone, and that salvation is in no one else but Jesus. So how did the Sanhedrin respond to this this sermon from Peter? They didn't know what to do. The lame man was standing right next to them, healed. So what did they do? All they could do, they threatened them. And the text says they threatened them with further threats. 
to never again speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But amongst these threats, Peter and John answered to them, again, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So this is where we find ourselves in the text this morning. I have three exhortations for you this morning. The first exhortation for you guys this morning, believers, pray together earnestly. Pray together earnestly. Because proclaiming Jesus deepens our need for prayer together. In verse 23, Luke recorded that when they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So who were their friends? Um, Their friends is an idiom, um, and it's very Lucan. Luke uses it again in chapter 21, 24. um, And the little rendering of this phrase, uh, their friends, uh, could be they they came to their own, their their own people. Uh, And a few scholars believe that you know, who, who are these friends? Um, who was their posse? Um, some believe, um, a few believe that it was just the 12, the leaders of the church. Um, but a larger majority of scholars take the view that their friends refer to the Christian community kind of as a whole, not just the 12. And um, we'll see evidence of this later when Luke later refers to this community that they come back to as the ecclesia, the church, in chapter 511. And this expression is something that Luke uses intentionally here. Why? It's to emphasize how the early church, God's church, saw itself as a supportive community of friends. The same community of friends is the same group of people that we saw in Acts 2, 42 through 47, where we saw that summary um, that characterized their devotion to the apostles' teaching, uh, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers, and the community, and the table fellowship, day by day, um, the missional outreach, day by day, together, um, the display of generous caring for one another, and a need within the church. This is the same group that Peter and John went back to upon their release, and Peter and John reported to this group what the chief priests and the elders had threatened them with. What was that threat is that they were to never again speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So look at verse 24. How do they respond to this first threat, this first sign of persecution? Verse 24 says, when they heard it, when the community, the Christian community heard it, their friends heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. When they heard the report that the threats of the Sanhedrin, their first response was to come together and to pray. To pray. They didn't hold a meeting. (laughs) They didn't take a vote. Uh, They didn't uh, concoct some sort of a response plan, a a counter-strike, a set of strategic evasive maneuvers. What did they do? They came together to pray. Luke uses this adverb to characterize what this prayer looked like. He says, with one accord, in order to express that there was this oneness of effort. Proclaiming Jesus deepened their need for prayer together. Church, pray together earnestly. Proclaiming Jesus deepens our need for prayer together. 
want to read you this report. Last week, um, a reporter recorded the response of a man named Talahun from Ethiopia. It states that Talahun trusted in Christ eight years ago and became an active member in his church. Then, in 2020, his home was burned and he was physically attacked by armed men because of his Christian faith. As a result of this attack, his leg had to be amputated. Talahun became discouraged as he struggled to provide for his family and also to pay for his medical treatment. And then, frontline workers connected with Talahun and a Christian fundraising organization has helped provide for his living essentials and medical needs. And get this, this is crazy. In an interview, Talahun explains God responds to our prayers in ways that we have not expected. I never thought I would ever be able to get help from people who do not know me, but God sent them. But God sent them. See, this is the church. This is the the community of believers in action. This is the power of prayer. Now, I want to draw you and draw your attention back to the content of this early church's prayer. It's not just the action, but let's look at the content. They began with praising God by acknowledging that he is the sovereign Lord and that he is the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything, and he created everything. And then they do something very familiar. In verses 25 through 28, they quote scripture. They quote from Psalm 2, 1 and 2, in their prayer to God. And many people ask, you know, why, you know, they're already praying to God. Why are they going to the Word? Why are they going to the Bible? I think Spurgeon has a really neat quote. I love quoting Spurgeon. The Spurge writes, when asked, what is more important, prayer or reading the Bible? I ask, what is more important, breathing in or breathing out? That is how the early church saw this beautiful necessity of prayer and scripture in the believer's life. They saw Psalm 2 as this written prophecy that was from God through David under the Holy Spirit's inspiration to speak of God's anointed king. They understood that this text in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 2, that this text was speaking of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, the passion narrative. They recognized that the raging nations were the Gentile rulers and soldiers that crucified Jesus, that those who plotted in vain referred to the peoples of Israel who rejected Jesus, that the kings of the earth referred to Herod, and the rulers referred to Pontius Pilate. Look at verse 28. After they recognize God's sovereignty, they pray for God to do whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. You see, they knew that proclaiming the gospel of Jesus would bring about opposition. They knew the threats. They knew the cost. They knew the power of their enemies. But they knew God. They knew God's power. They knew God's authority over all the creation. They knew their need to come before him in prayer. So again, church family, Pray together earnestly because proclaiming Jesus deepens our need for prayer together. 
That was the first exhortation. My second exhortation this morning, uh, proclaim Christ unceasingly. Proclaim Christ unceasingly. His church prays for boldness to face opposition and suffer faithfully. Luke continues in verse 29, and he records their request. So this is still in the prayer. After they've acknowledged and identified who God is and his power, they record, uh, Luke records this request. They, they make this petition to God for God to act. And we see this similar prayer in Isaiah 37, where, where King Hezekiah prays for the nation of Israel. And both of these prayers, um, as, as they quote Psalm 2, 1 through 2, also Isaiah 37 with Hezekiah's prayer, they both share similar elements. But instead of asking God to deliver them from their enemies in this Isaiah passage, here in Acts 4, 29, the church prays for courage to face opposition of their enemies and suffer faithfully. And I feel like I gotta repeat that again. So again, I repeat, instead of praying for God to remove them from harm's way, instead of asking God to crush, smite their enemies for them, instead of asking God to spare them of hardship, instead of asking for God to make their situation comfortable, cozy, and oh so easy, they ask God to grant them, as his humble servants, boldness to face the opposition of their enemies and to suffer faithfully. They are viewing this psalm, Psalm 2, 1 through 2, prophetically, speaking not only of Christ's persecution, but also of their persecution as they proclaim his name. They believed that the threats that they were facing was a continuing fulfillment of this psalm. So Luke continues in verse 31, recording how God answered their prayer. And Luke records three things. God shook the place that they were gathered. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. See, God made his presence known. He shook the place in which they were praying, confirming that their prayers were heard. It's important to note that their faith was not shaken. It was the place in which they were gathered together that was shaken. Instead, their faith was deepened. In 2009, there was a record of a man named Zhu, a resident of Beijing who became a Christian at age 38. Zhu's church property was seized by the government, forcing them to meet in outdoor parks and other areas. And as he was attending an outdoor worship service, Beijing authorities barged in their service, detained the congregants, recorded everyone's IDs, job contacts, and their home addresses. Records show that their landlords, their relatives, and their employers of these participants, who are often not believers, began perceiving or receiving threatening phone calls in order to put more pressure on Christian members who are part of Christian outdoor activities. Many lost their jobs. Some lost their homes and rental leases, and threats escalated frequently. Zhu records in 
an online article that he would be placed in prison often uh, between a few hours and up to 15 days in jail simply because they had all his information. He would not lose hope in the new life God had given him in Christ. They would often allow Zhu to sing hymns in his cell as long as they weren't too loud to attract uh, the, the prison workers. Um, and in prison, he met many drug addicts, prostitutes, black market dealers and thieves in his cell and spoke to them often about the gospel. This is what he writes, and I love his language so much. He wrote, when I was placed on duty in his cell, I prayed for everybody with whom I came in contact every day. I asked God to give me opportunities to talk with them and to give me the right words to speak. He writes, in the first 10 days, God answered every single prayer on my list. So this prison became a special retreat for me. It was in these moments that I found myself falling in love with this place. I even had desires to stay in prison longer. You see, this man was experiencing something the early church understood very well. Their persecution was a sign from God that confirmed that they were right where they needed to be. Their persecution was a sign from God that confirmed that they were doing the right thing. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Throughout Acts, we've witnessed how God used signs in service of the gospel being proclaimed. In this passage, what were the signs God was using? They recognized the sign of God um, doing miraculous healing through the apostles. They recognized the sign that God's awesome presence was shaking their homes in which they were praying. They recognized the sign of supernatural growth within the church. They recognized the sign of God's protection um, on trial as they were um, proclaiming Jesus before the Sanhedrin. But don't miss this. They also recognize that the sign of persecution is something that God allowed in order to develop in them an even deeper boldness. And as we'll see in this last section, a stirred affection for one another, a unity with each other. So again, church, there will be a day when we will experience the type of persecution that Zhu faced. There will be a day when we will experience the type of persecution that this early church faced. My question is, will we hide in fear? Will we hold our tongues and allow our opposition to muzzle us? So again, brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you who have trusted and placed your faith in Jesus, I urge you, proclaim Christ unceasingly. Let's be his church, one that prays for boldness to face opposition and suffer faithfully. My final exhortation this morning is provide for others continually. Provide for others continually. His church's unity is marked by great power and great grace. Once again, in, in verses 32 through 35, we see something very Luke, something very familiar. 
Luke writes these summaries of the church in order to signal that a new development in the church has taken place. We saw this uh, earlier in Acts 2, 42 through 47, where we see this first summary that included several characteristic marks of the church. And a few weeks ago, uh, we discussed how all these characteristics, everything that we listed earlier, were fueled by, centered in, rooted in their ongoing devotion to the apostles' teaching. Not one of those descriptions in that summary was separate from their ongoing devotion to the apostles' teaching. It was because of the primacy of God's word. It was because they knew that God's word is what transformed their hearts to act. That their philosophy on everything that exists and what matters most to them in the world they live in was transformed to reflect Christ. Their worldview was transformed. It was turned upside down. In the same way, Luke offers this second summary here in chapter 4, and it records more details about this development shift, this developmental shift in their worldview. He explains that community life is thriving. Their unity is described as one heart and one soul. And check this out. Luke now refers to the church size as the full number literally the multitude. Uh, one, one scholar explains, because their rapid growth, um, because of their rapid growth, Luke no longer numbers them in this record. Last we saw, Luke records that there were over 500 men, which possibly would entail families, wives, children. And yet, with thousands upon thousands of believers, he records, Luke records, that there are of one heart and soul. This early onset of persecution didn't deter them from their devotion to God. It didn't deter them from their worship together. Instead, it deepened their devotion to God. It deepened their worship together and it deepened their unity as believers. Luke hones in on one considerable development in his church. He focuses on how they generously shared goods within their fellowship. And this record of giving parallels the first summary that Luke writes because they shared as any within the fellowship had need to the point that there was not a needy person among them. And look at verse 34. I want to draw your attention back to verse 34. Luke records that every need was met because landowners and homeowners were ongoingly selling their property bring the proceeds and laying them down at their leader's feet. And the tense of this verb selling tells us that this was this ongoing action. They didn't liquidate all their assets at once. Whenever needs arose, they would act. In fact, um, if you look at verses 36 and 37, Luke offers this exemplary model in this guy named Joseph. Um, they nicknamed him uh, Barnabas, um, and he sold his field. Barnabas sold his field and brought it to the apostles' feet. And this is a man that, that Luke introduces here very briefly, but we're going to see him throughout Acts. There's a reason why they use him as an example here. This was their sharing, their generosity, their sense of unity, and it's baffling. And it is because people marvel at this unity, because people are awestruck at this unity, that many churches mistakenly try to start there. 
instead of starting in verse 1 or starting in verse 23, they want to start at jump to verse 32 through 37. We want that part. We don't want the persecution and the threats and the hardship. We want verses 32 through 37. Just cut out the rest. They look at this unity and they say, okay, that's what we need to start doing in our church. But that's not what this text is saying. What Luke records is that God, in his sovereignty, permitted, he allowed this onset of persecution in order to develop his church, in order to develop within his church a deep unity. This community's affections were stirred for one another because they were being threatened together. Church, we can't just stop, start sharing and just assume that God is going to bring unity in our church. Please, please pay attention to this really important part. The only reason we could ever give in this way is because God has given us everything we could ever need in Christ. You can't just run to the product of a Christian's faith the sharing, the generosity, the loving, the unity, the service, and assume that by acting the part, by participating in these actions, that you have arrived in a good standing with God. Any Christian action, no matter how good it is, separated from salvation in Christ through faith is just a smokescreen camouflaging the real need. Performing an action for God, no matter how good it may seem, does not take care of the problem of sin, the thing that separates us from God. This is one of the reasons why we have decided as, as our family um, to guard our kids away from any Christian performance before, before they have received salvation in Christ and they have matured in their faith. You see, if, just to give an example, if my son or daughter develops this great talent for singing or playing drums or guitar, um, I would in no way want them to perform on stage with this music worship team unless they meet two qualifications. Our family decided that the two qualifications is they have to be saved by faith in Christ first before they lead people of faith in worship together and singing. They have to be mature in their faith to be qualified as a leader to be on this platform. You know, I don't care about their skill level or their excellence or their proficiency. I care about their eternity. If they're not saved by the blood of Christ, if they don't have a well-worn faith, I do not want them to be on this platform. I do not want them to have a cheap imitation of faith. I do not want them to possess a cheap knockoff of unity within the church body. I don't want them to have a false sense of security like I had simply because they participated in something on this platform. That's not what church is for, and that's not what our worship is about. I have lost too many friends who are on their way, pipeline through ministry to get them on a platform 
and they have fallen in their faith simply because they rushed to get here. As Spurgeon once wrote, sin cannot be removed by our tears or by our deeds. It is removed by faith in Christ alone. Amen. And again, you can't fabricate true unity with static actions and expect it to last. True unity is developed around the faithful proclamation of Jesus. If you don't know Christ, don't turn to Christian behaviors, to Christian actions, to Christian speech, and expect results. Turn instead to Christ. Only in him will you find the rest that we read about in Scripture. So believers, God has provided every need you could ever have in Christ. Therefore, I want to urge you, provide for others in the church community continually. This is the unity that Luke is speaking of. Unity that is displayed with great power through the actions that are rooted in great grace of Jesus Christ. His church's unity is marked by great power and great grace. So in conclusion, uh, I just want to close this time and make sure that everyone here in this room is being addressed. And so first, I want to start off with the people that are not believers here this morning. Maybe you've heard about Jesus before. Maybe you've seen very terrible, hypocritical examples of what Christians say there are, but they never put it to action. This first application point is for you. If you're visiting with us here in person or online, and you have never placed your faith in Jesus, there's only one application I have for you this morning. I wanna address to you, turn to Jesus. He will have you. For those of you who are here that are listening online or um, in person, that personally you do not know Jesus. You have not accepted this free gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you with the words of Isaiah when he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Receive Christ. He will have you. And if you don't know Christ, turn to him. Only in Christ will you ever find rest, true peace, and a family of brothers and sisters eagerly waiting to walk alongside you. Now I want to turn to um, the faithful Christians, the failing Christians. If you're a believer saved by the blood of Christ, I just want to repeat my three points to you. Pray together earnestly. When, and I say when, you face threats, opposition, it's going to come. When you face persecution, let your first impulse always be to earnestly pray with other brothers and sisters. Because proclaiming Jesus deepens our need for prayer together. We must not grow weary of gathering together. We must not grow weary of praying together. And don't just pray. Proclaim Christ unceasingly. Just a quick question. Have you ceased proclaiming Jesus Christ? Have you lost the urgency of sharing the gospel with unbelievers? Sharing the gospel with lost family, lost friends, your unbelieving neighbor, maybe unbelieving kids. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are saved by the blood of Christ, 
if you have truly committed your life to Christ, you, in Scripture, have been commanded to, by Jesus to go and to proclaim the gospel. Matthew 28, 18, to, 18 through 20, the anthem of our vision statement. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. We need to be his church that follows this commissioning. We need to be his church that prays for boldness to proclaim the gospel. And if and when it leads to threats, we pray for even more boldness to face opposition and suffer faithfully. And finally, believers, provide for others continually. His church's unity is marked by great power and great grace. So does this here, one heart and one soul, speak of our church here at Wailai? If you're a believer here this morning, do you see needs around and within the church family? Is our unity here at Wildlife Baptist Church marked by great power and great grace? Or is it marked by something else? Church, one of the most foundational ways we can evidence that our greatest need has been met in Christ is that we are meeting other believers' needs as they arise. This is what it means to put on display the love and grace of Christ. This is what it means to provide for others continually. This is what it means to, to be of one heart and soul. This is what it means to be his church. Wyla, let's become his church.